Have you ever followed the advice or directions of someone who turns out to have no idea where they're going? It's a very frustrating experience. In June of 1997, our family moved to Berlin. And in those initial years, I often went from where we lived in the city out to the far eastern sections to play basketball with some friends. There was another believing German-American that I went with, and we went out to play with uh, some late teens or early 20s Aussies, otherwise known as East Berliners. And to them, we were the Amis, the Americans. The first few times I traveled out there, whether it was by train or by tram or walking, I got lost multiple times. And that was frustrating because I'm the kind of person that always wants to think that I know where I'm going. Several times I brought myself to ask someone else for help. And those formerly, formerly communist Aussies were more than happy to help out this young capitalist Ami in his time of need. They would give me directions. And I would nod my head like I understood. And off into the oblivion, I went. Part of the time, I remained lost because I really didn't understand what they had told me. But there were multiple times in which they didn't know my destination. They wanted to show me that they did, but they couldn't really help this poor soul. And either way, whether I misunderstood or they didn't know the destination, I was left in the dark. It was frustrating futility, to be sure. Today we continue in our series called Upside Down, Following God in an Unpredictable World. And if there's ever been a time in recent decades that seem unpredictable, that seem disorienting, it's now. We ask ourselves those questions. What can I control? Where am I going? Who can I trust? And why is this happening? This season of our lives, we can feel like we're mostly living upside down. We're reminded again and again, certainly on a cultural level, also in our own personal circumstances, that we're not in control and there seems to be no end in sight. Do you know the feeling of that? We can certainly relate to the disciples in the upper room, the upper room discourse of Jesus. On this momentous evening, Jesus speaks to their situation and Jesus gives them his plan. And he tells them how they ought to think, how they ought to relate, how they ought to live in the future beyond this very night. And so much of what they needed to hear, we 2,000 years later need to hear too. Hope you have your Bibles with you. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 14 as we continue in our Upside Down series. John chapter 14, we begin with the exhortation from Jesus where he says, do not be troubled, believe in me. Read with me, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Chapter 14 begins with this exhortation. On the same evening, 
from Jesus to his disciples. And it's delivered with both personal warmth and also a pressing conviction. Jesus, remember, at the end of chapter 13 has just announced his impending departure. He's just commanded them to follow this seemingly impossible directive to love one another. He's just warned Peter of his imminent denial. And so the disciples are shaken. They're overwhelmed. They're sobered. And right on the heels of that, here at the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus expresses his compassion and his care. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Because he knew that, humanly speaking, they had every reason to have troubled hearts. The word troubled there means to be stirred up, to be agitated, to be disturbed. You might remember a previous story in the Gospel of John, John chapter 5, where there's a lame man and he speaks of the waters being stirred, being agitated. That's the same idea here. Not placid, but stirred up. Jesus, in fact, uses this same word to describe his own heart, his own soul at times. In John chapter 11, when he sees the grief surrounding the death of Lazarus, Jesus was troubled. He was stirred up emotionally. Likewise, when he spoke of the coming betrayal of his disciple up to that time, Judas, Jesus was troubled. It's the opposite of being settled at peace. So Jesus knows what they're feeling. Jesus feels it too. Remember here in John chapter 14, Jesus knows that the agony of the cross is right around the corner. And yet on this night of nights, when of all times it would have been most appropriate for the disciples of Jesus to comfort him, Jesus comforts them. Because he knows that they're troubled too. Not because they're rushing toward the pain and the shame and the crucifixion to come. But because they're confused, they they don't understand what Jesus means. And they feel threatened by these predictions of Jesus' imminent departure. What a God, this Jesus, to empathize with the weaknesses of his followers, just like the Bible tells us he empathizes with ours. And yet Jesus follows those words at the beginning of John chapter 14 with a bold challenge. He says to them, in effect, just as you believe in God, you should now also believe in me. Jesus is saying that God has revealed himself in their presence in the present time. You should trust me in the same way, Jesus says to his disciples, that you trust in the Father. Jesus is making a claim here of equality with Yahweh, the one true God. And to the disciples and the Jews of that day, this kind of claim would have been incredibly blasphemous, unless it was true. You see, for John and for those of us who read this gospel, faith in Jesus is not something additional to faith in God. Rather, Leon Morris writes, Jesus is the revelation of God, and there's no way to the Father but through him. Faith in the Father is impossible apart from faith in Jesus. Here's why. Because if Jesus speaks the words of God, if Jesus does the acts of God, should not Jesus be trusted as God? And the answer is indeed he should, because Jesus is divine. We'll see that theme throughout these verses and indeed this section. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, believe in me. This is a 
fairly unique expression in ancient Greek, but not to the New Testament. In fact, John uses this phrase multiple times, to believe in. It's a distinctly Christian phrase. It it speaks of personal relationship, of a commitment between a person and Jesus. Theologian of years gone by, George Eldon Ladd says, faith in Christ means personal identification with him. It's more than just an intellectual assent to certain facts, though it does include affirmation about Christ. Listen closely. It means the response of the whole man, the whole person, to the revelation that's been given in Christ. It involves personal trust and confidence in who Jesus is. You see, the disciples have gotten to know Jesus. They've seen him as rabbi. They've seen him as miracle worker, as as impressive teacher. But now he tells them to trust him as Savior, because Jesus is divine. And there are many people in our day and age who need to recognize that Jesus is more than just those first things. But he's the Son of God, and he's the Savior. Do you believe that? Having given them their new commands, Jesus to the disciples, first to love one another at the end of chapter 13, and now to believe in him, to trust in him, Chapter 14, Jesus begins to inform them about this time of temporary separation. Jesus, of course, is paving the way for their future presence, for their future glory, their fellowship with him. But the disciples at the time wondered, where where and how does this all take place? We have the advantage of looking back at the developments in the story. We know that Jesus returned to them after the resurrection. We know that Jesus will return to us at his second coming. And though either one of those could explain what Jesus is saying here, what he says likely refers to the second. Jesus' second coming that is yet future for us. No wonder then that Jesus would command them to not let their hearts be troubled. Jesus knew the future. Jesus knew the bigger plan. Jesus was prophetically revealing to his disciples that their future beyond was secure. Jesus had them in his hands, and Jesus had them in his plans. They knew him, and he knew them, and whatever these intervening times would bring, they would not be lost to Jesus. So in light of that secure future, which is secure for those of us who follow him today, they should live in the present in an altered way. And so should we. They could endure without troubled hearts, Jesus says, if they would trust him, if they would set aside the anxiety because he was not abandoning them. His plans had them in view and his presence was with them. Do not Let your hearts be troubled. You know, in the season that we live in now, COVID-19, the coronavirus, don't we also need to hear this exhortation, this warm command from Jesus, do not let your hearts be troubled? If we're honest in the present day and age, many of us have troubled hearts. We're full of anxiety. We don't know the future and we wonder whom we can trust. What can calm my anxious heart? The answer, the presence and the plan of Jesus and the promises of Jesus too. Do you know him? 
Do you know them? In these early verses of John chapter 14, there's a phrase there, many mansions in some of the older translations. And when we hear that, we think of giant villas for very wealthy people. That's not quite accurate. We actually get that word mansions from an an old Latin translation of a similar spelling. But, But the original meaning here, as Jesus expressed it, means rooms or dwelling places. We might call it uh, suites in a a large castle or in a grand estate. Jesus' point here is that there will be plenty of rooms for all the people who belong to him. And the presence of Jesus is actually the prize there. The emphasis of Jesus is not the grandeur of the dwellings, though they may be grand, but the glory of the deity. And that's him. And Jesus, who's going to the cross and will be raised from the dead, is preparing a place for his disciples. And that signifies his preparation. Put this in the context of what Jesus had just told his disciples. He told them that where he was going, they could not come, at least not in the present time. And here they are, these young men who had left everything to follow their leader for several years is about to leave them, and this is shattering for them. They're disturbed, and you and I would be too. But Jesus here at the beginning of chapter 14 rounds out the picture. Jesus says that in due time, he would no longer be absent, that he would come back for them, and that he would lead them to his destination which is great news, relieving news, whether they or we understand it or not. And Jesus says in the meantime, in the meantime for us, Jesus is preparing a place for those who belong to him. Not not just as invited guests to, to honor the hero, Jesus, but that the hero, Jesus, was actively involved in the preparations and the arrangements and the reception for those disciples and for you and me if we know him. Let's confess, we often put our trust in things, in material things, in the stock market, in in authorities, in, in medicine. But Jesus says here to trust a person. Jesus is going to come again And he has come again after the resurrection. Like the disciples, we assume that it's up to us to know the route and to know the destination. But Jesus reminds them, no, it's up to me. Trust me. First question we get from one of the disciples, one of several, is from Thomas. How how can we know the way? And Jesus responds, well, you're looking at him. I am the way. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how do we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. All this talk of departure, all this talk of a future destination, and Thomas speaking probably for many of the disciples, is desperate to know the details, where this place is and how to get there. Thomas is living in the fog of the here and now. Something's about to change and Thomas is unsettled. Thomas wants to be in control of things. Thomas wants to know what's happening. And so do we. This is all very human. And it all lacks trust. We can be just like Thomas here. 
One of our grace pastors this week noted that, that Thomas's response here is a lot like Nicodemus's response earlier in the same gospel, John chapter 3. Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about being born again, and, and Nicodemus gets lost in the, the, the conundrum of a physical rebirth. How does that happen, Jesus? But Jesus is speaking of grander spiritual truths here. Unfortunately, Thomas, in a similar way, gets stuck on Jesus' next steps. Thomas is is wanting to guard this physical proximity to Jesus. Thomas and and Nicodemus and we are often fixated on the here and now. But Jesus reminds us that God has a bigger plan, a bigger picture, and it includes our lives, and that bigger picture matters. We often shackle ourselves when we get lost in the trees, but fail to see the forest in life. Jesus looks at Thomas and he assures him that he has everything under control, that there's a bigger picture, that Jesus is in charge of all of this, that that Thomas doesn't need an atlas, he doesn't need MapQuest, he doesn't need his iPhone, he doesn't need Siri for this. Thomas doesn't need to read thick books by, by famed philosophers to understand this. Thomas needs a person, and that person tells him what he needs to know. So often in life, we claim to want information when what we really crave is presence. See, to know someone who's with us is far more reassuring many times than to be sure that all the circumstances will be easy. And Jesus offers himself as that person. In fact, he's the only one. Jesus' claim is personal and exclusive. I am the way and the truth and the life. We shouldn't overlook those words there spoken on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion. Way speaks of a connection between two entities linking God and man. Leon Morris writes, I am the way, the one who would shortly hang impotent on the cross, that Jesus. Truth reminds us of the reliability of Jesus and all he says and all he does. I am the truth. When the lies of evil men were about to enjoy a spectacular triumph at the cross, or so they thought. Life stresses here more than just a physical existence that Jesus himself is life. I am the life, Jesus says. When within a few hours, his corpse would be placed in a tomb. Jesus gives Thomas here a fuller answer than he requested. The way, the truth, and the life. He answers Thomas' question about the way, but truth and life follow. Jesus is the way to God precisely because he's the truth of God and the life of God. Jesus is the supreme revelation of who God is. As Don Carson writes, Jesus does not simply blaze a trail commanding others to take the way that he himself takes. Rather, he is the way. Jesus doesn't caveat what he says here. He doesn't qualify what he says here. This is a totalizing, all-encompassing declaration for everyone. It's like Paul said in Acts chapter 17, for all peoples everywhere. This, to put it mildly, is out of step with our culture. Our culture, our zeitgeist, despises this idea that there is a superior way or truth or life. We think everyone should follow their own way and find it equally valid. 
Jewish rabbi of years gone by said it like this. I am absolutely against any religion that says that one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is any different than spiritual racism. It's a way of saying that we're closer to God than others, and that's what leads to hatred. Jesus' assertion here in John chapter 14, verse 6, reflects to many people in our country, in our world, of, of spiritual chauvinism, of a spiritual religious dictatorship, and that's a grand obstacle for people. In fact, it's radioactive in our day, a day full of tolerance and pluralism. But remember who said it here. Jesus did. And in our witness to him, we ought to let people have their struggle with Jesus. Back in the New Testament times, in in Paul's day, There were gods and religions and worldviews aplenty. And we find some of that today. Go to a university campus. Go to a larger city. Listen to the media. And the idea that one faith, one religious viewpoint is superior to another is a thing of the past. There's diversity all around us. Diversity of ideas and of, of ethnicities and cultures and religions. Surely nobody can claim that their way, their religion is superior. Everyone has their own beliefs, and they're all equally valid, aren't they? Is that true? Some people explain away this claim in the Bible to Jesus' exclusivity by saying, it's kind of like the man who says, my daughter says that I'm the best daddy in the whole world, and no father is like me. He says she's speaking the truth because this comes from her own experience. She's being honest about it. She knows no other person in that role of father. In other words, he implies, our exclusive claims about Jesus are rooted in a limited perspective, not the whole picture. And that Jesus himself spoke out of a limited perspective. But did he? Other people describe faith like a mountain with God at the peak. And and all kinds of religious ways and spiritual ideas are just different paths to the top. What's important is not which way you choose or what you believe. More important is that you choose the way for you. But as comfortable as that picture might be, as much as you or I might want it to be true, it's simply not the view of the Bible and not of Jesus himself. The problem with that analogy is that it assumes that we already know that God is at the top and that we see clearly. Jesus informs us all that we don't. More accurate is to imagine a giant cliff on the side of an ocean where God is at the top of the plateau and all of humanity is in the stormy seas below, lost and drowning. And many people, many religions, many experts have many proposals for our rescue. But they all involve our attempt to climb that impossible cliff. And no matter how plausible those ideas or proposals seem, none of them overcomes our inability to rescue ourselves. But the Bible's message is different. It's that Jesus, the Son of God, comes down from the top of that cliff. That he throws out a rope, that he repels down. Better said that he is the rope. And that he rescues people, individuals, from the stormy seas and transports them to the top, to safety, 
to God himself. Jesus himself is the way. For the person who believes what the Bible says, that that Jesus has come as the culmination of the Father's revelation, that person can no longer claim that they know God while denying or disowning Jesus. The one who claims to know God but rejects Jesus does not know God. Indeed, the test of whether someone really knows God according to how God has revealed himself, is in their response to Jesus himself. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And that is the impetus, the motivation in all our evangelism. Peter got that message weeks later in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Why? Because Jesus himself is the revelation of God in the flesh. The beginning of John says as much. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. That's Jesus. Jesus has made God known, gloriously, visibly, definitively. Jesus refers to God as his Father, claiming equal status with God, equal value. No representative, mere representative, would say something like that. That's why Paul can later write to early followers of Jesus. Yet for us, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. The disciples heard all this and and took it in, but likely didn't grasp much of it at all. They didn't get it. Philip asks a second question in verse 8. Lord, can you show us the Father? And Jesus says to him, you're looking at him. I am God. Verse 8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The, The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the work themselves. Jesus is completing his answer to Thomas about the way. That he's not only the ultimate guide for people, including those disciples, Jesus is the destination as well. And to know him is to know the Father. To see him is to know the Father. This is a statement for the ages. This is an incredibly bold, even arrogant statement for anyone. Unless, of course, it was true. Jesus claims divinity. But Philip and some of the other disciples didn't get it. No wonder he can't restrain himself. He interrupts this explanation from Jesus to say, how can we know the way? Show us the Father. Philip's not the only one in history who's requested that. 
requested direct access for a display of God himself. He heard Jesus' claim to make that possible. There were a lot of all-stars in Jewish history who had had an encounter with the living God, who had seen him. Moses had a personal audience with the living God on the top of Mount Sinai, or God with Moses. Jacob wrestled with God in the night, it says in Genesis. A face-to-face encounter, the text says. Isaiah encountered God and was left humiliated, realizing his own lack of standing, his own unworthiness. But each of these is the exception, not the norm. Look at the second half of Philip's question, which is expressed as a request. He says, Jesus, if you show me the Father, that will be enough for me. If I could just see God, if I could just experience God, then I would be satisfied, then I would submit. But the story of these past years for Philip and the the time of this conversation proved that wasn't true for the disciples. Jesus was, Jesus had been the very presence of God himself, and yet Philip didn't recognize it here. He didn't have eyes to see who Jesus was. Philip and Thomas and the disciples and everyone else who sees and hears Jesus should have grasped that, but they don't. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Can't you see? Don't you understand? You can hear the amazement, the exasperation in Jesus' question. They still don't understand why he's come. And he's come to show them the Father and to reconcile them with the Father. Jesus proceeds then to flesh out his identity that that he is in the Father and the Father in him, that they are in perfect relationship, that they have a common purpose, that they have coordinated action, that the Father does his work through Jesus. And that even though equal in value, there is a subordination even within the Trinity. We'll soon see this with the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit later in chapter 14. And then Jesus, perhaps with exasperation, condescends to his disciples and says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father or the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus says that these miracles are powerful pointers to him. John calls them signs, not simply because they were impressive displays of power. No, Jesus is not simply history's greatest showman, Jesus is God Almighty. Jesus is looking at them and they at him. And they were signs, they were pointers, these miracles. They were neon arrows at the person of Jesus. This is God in their midst. You know, it requires faith to believe the true meaning of those signs. To to those who don't have faith, these signs are simply meaningless sensations. But to those who are responsive by the grace of God, the signs, the miracles of Jesus confirm and deepen our faith. 
As Ladd says, it's not sufficient to be impressed by the miracles. They must be seen as a revelation of who Jesus is and his oneness with the Father. Jesus' point is that the miracles he has done are signs to make undoubtedly clear that he is God. Jesus concludes with a promise to his disciples, one that they wouldn't have understood at the time, but later did more and more. He says, you will do great things in my name for my fame. Just ask me. Verse 12, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. In plain words, Jesus introduces some complicated truths here about greater things and what that means for those who will follow him. Jesus introduces complicated things when he says, you may ask for whatever you want in my name, and I will do it. The Bible speaks in other places of that, and Jesus begins to roll that out as we work through this section of Scripture. Is it possible that those who follow him could do even greater things? Indeed it is of worldwide scope, testifying to Jesus. Is it possible that Jesus will give what we ask? Indeed it is, as we conform our wishes to his character and his glory. Those who know Jesus are fixated not on themselves, but on the plan of God and the person of God in the person Jesus Christ. Are you fixated on the honor and glory of Jesus? Is that your desire? Is that the passion of your life? Do I long for Jesus to be lifted up and magnified and glorified? The only way that can be true of me, the only way that I can express it to others and share it with a watching world is if I first believe it. Do you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life? like to ask you as we close to respond to the claims, to the words of Jesus. I want to ask you to respond not just in your own mind, but to even respond online. To go to gracepolaris.org contact and write your response in, in encouragement to the rest of us, of what you think of Jesus. If you're someone who's repented of your sins, who's, who's trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, the Bible tells us, John 1, that you're a child of God that you have believed that Jesus is the one and only Savior, the one who's forgiven your sins. I want you to go to that and to type in there, I've been reconciled to the Father through Jesus alone. Would you encourage us in that way? Maybe for the first time today as you understand who Jesus is claiming to be, that you want to confess that. If that's the case for you, go to that, gracepolaris.org contact and and type in, today Jesus has become my one and only Savior. I confess that he is my Savior who forgives my sins and has become Lord of my life. Oh, we would rejoice with you. And if you're hearing this saying, I'm not sure if I can say that. I'm not sure I understand what that means. I'd like to invite you to go to that same site, gracepolaris.org forward slash contact and type in, I want to understand what Jesus claims. I want to know what it means to respond to him. Would you do that? 
We'd love to contact you and to help you understand what it means to respond to the Jesus of the Bible. The message for all of us today, repeated for the first time as you consider, is to trust not your troubled heart, but to trust the identity of Jesus. As the musicians come up, I want to end with a a poem written hundreds of years ago by an earlier follower of Jesus, Thomas Akempis, who said this in accordance with John 14. I am the way to God. I did not come to light a path to blaze a trail that you may simply follow in my tracks, pursue my shadow like a prize that's cheaply won. Your way to God is not my way, but me. I am the truth of God. I do not claim I merely speak the truth as though I were a prophet, but no more. A channel stirred by the Spirit's power of purely human frame. The claim to speak the truth, good men applaud. I claim much more. I am the truth of God. I am the resurrection life. It's not as though I merely bear life-giving drink. The price of life was fully paid. I fought with death and black despair, for I'm the drink of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except through me.